Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. If there was ever a minister who had a heart of compassion and loved young people, it was M.R. McCrary. This sermon was preached in 2004 at Seabreeze Camp Meeting in Hope Sound, Florida. It's titled, Attitude Appraisal. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful message. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on, and on. Well, periodically, I pull into a Jiffy Lube, and uh, I get the oil changed in my car. And uh, it's not because I hear an unpleasant noise in my engine, but it's what I call preventative maintenance. I don't want to hear a knocking in my motor. I don't want to hear anything that's awry under that hood. I want to keep it running smoothly, so I change the oil. It's called preventative maintenance. I feel like my doctor has done a very good job at correcting some of my medical problems, and I stand before you today as a, a very grateful person for the healing that I have experienced over the past 12 months, but guess what? I still find it comforting to go into his office and let him take all of my vital signs and hear him say, Reverend, you're doing good. It's called preventative maintenance. My wife does the financing at our house. Thank God. Periodically, I see her sitting at the table, so intense, looking at our checkbook, tallying things up. Now it isn't that we've overspent. She's just inventorying and makes sure that everything is covered and the bills are paid and there's a healthy balance in the checking account. It's called preventative maintenance. Today, some of you will analyze this sermon and wonder what in the world is McCrary trying to do today and I'm just going to suggest to you that for the bulk of you, the most of you, this is going to be a message of preventative maintenance. No, I'm not going to take you to the doctor's office. We're not going to get our oil changed. We're not going to start looking at our checkbooks this morning. But we are going to do some introspection Hopefully, with God's help, we're going to have an attitude check this morning. Amen? Attitude, state of mind, a feeling, has to do with your disposition. Attitude affects your sense of humor. Your attitude can control your mood. Your attitude affects your reactions, your sentiments. All of the tendencies in your life can be affected by your attitude. Amen? A good attitude can be winsome. A good attitude can surround you with a lot of friends. A bad attitude can make you into a very lonely person. No one wants to be around an individual 
who has a bad attitude. Amen. I want to look into the lost and found department of God's word today and we're going to do some thinking about attitudes. I call it the lost and found department. Luke chapter 15. And you understand why I call it the lost and found department, I'm sure. Many things are lost in this chapter. Many things are found. And so as a consequence, why not call it the lost and found department of God's word? There is a sheep that is lost, but a good shepherd goes in search for that sheep and seeks after it until he finds it. There is a coin that is lost, and the little woman who has lost the coin is very diligent about finding it, and she garnishes the house. She sweeps hither and there and probably moves all the furniture around until she finds the coin, and when she does, it's a time of celebration. She calls her neighbors in, and they rejoice with her that she has found her coin. Then there is this story that has been labeled the greatest short story ever told. It's the story of a man's ruin and recovery. It's the story all of us know to be the story of the prodigal son, a boy who was lost. And his father said, we need to rejoice because he is found. Amen. I... Uh, want us to look at the latter part of that chapter that has to do with the prodigal son. We're not going to be dealing very much with the prodigal son. We're going to be dealing more with the other sibling in the family, the other member of this household. This father had not one son who went into the far country and wasted his living riotously, but he had two sons, one that stayed on the home front and one that seemed to help take care of the chores around the house. He was the older of the two boys. He's the one we want to focus on this morning as we have an attitude check. Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to you this morning, would you help us as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning for just a few moments? Don't let us say anything that you wouldn't wish for us to say. Help us to be careful with our own spirit as we present this message today because it's meant to be helpful and not destructive. So in Christ's name, if you'll give us that special touch and anointing, I will be forever grateful and give you the praise and the honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen. I want to talk about five C's, the letter C of a bad attitude today. And as we look at this remaining portion of chapter, the chapter starting with verse 25 down through and including the last verse of the chapter, just keep your Bible open and look. You know the story as well as I know the story. And so let's take a long, hard look at this passage of Scripture today. Attitude seems to some people to be such a small thing, but attitude makes a big difference. Have you ever questioned about why it was that the prodigal son left home? I've asked myself that question numerous times, and to be honest with you, I still don't know the answer as to why he would leave the comforts of home, such a beautiful situation that seemed to have presented itself to this young lad but for some strange reason he comes to his father and he specifically states dad I want the money that rightly belongs to me and when the father gives him his heritage inheritance he goes off into this far country and wastes it I don't really know why do you suspect that it is because he has received a rather sizable inheritance. You reckon it is the fact that he has money in his pocket and it's burning? 
and he goes out there in that far country and spends it? Or do you think maybe it was a more legitimate reason why he left? Some of you perhaps have come to the conclusion that he's a young man now. Why continue to be a financial load to mom and dad? Why continue to be a financial liability? Why can't I strike out on my own? And why can't I become dependent upon myself rather than independent upon dad and mom? Hey, I got to grow up sometime, so here I go. And maybe, maybe that was the reason for his departure. Maybe it was because there was this innate urgent feeling that he had to sow some wild oats. I don't really know, but I have a feeling that it was something more specific than either of those reasons. I think maybe it had to do with another personality who lived on the same piece of property, who perhaps maybe even shared earlier in their lives at least a bedroom but today he has become a dominant person. He has become a, a, a censoring person. He has become somewhat an attitude problem. Let me ask you, do you like to be around people who have a bad attitude? I don't. I want to get out of there as fast as I can. I don't want any of that rubbing off on me. And so it may be that this was the reason why he left home. I can only suggest that to you today. But looking at the elder brother, I think there are some things that we need to think about. And let it just be preventative maintenance for us this morning. All right, it's Monday. Just us here. So let's think about this. Number one. Number one, a bad attitude or an attitude that is left unchecked develops into a complaining spirit. That's the first C. A complaining spirit. You say, well, McCrary, how is it that you arrive at that particular point of emphasis this morning? Well, at your leisure, read this passage of Scripture, and here's what you're going to discover. Here is a man who doesn't have anything positive or anything good or anything complimentary to say throughout the whole dialogue. Everything he says, whether it's regarding his brother or what's going on in his father's decisions, everything he says is by way of a complaint. Now, I've been around long enough to know that you can't please everybody no matter how hard you try. I mean, some folks sitting in our holiness churches Unfortunately, if you would try to serve them on a silver platter, they would complain because the platter wasn't gold. Amen. And since I'm a minister and since I try to preach the gospel, let me pick on ourselves as the clergy. You know, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter how hard you try to please people with your preaching. It's impossible to please everybody. Amen. Some people, if you uh, preach too long, they complain. Dear Lord, he doesn't preach by the watch. He preaches by the calendar. Or if he doesn't preach long enough, then they complain because he doesn't even earn his salary. We just barely get settled in to listen to his sermon, and he's saying, shall we stand? It's not even hardly worth our time going to church. He preaches such short little sermonettes. Or if he preaches too loud... Oh, Lord, he hurts my eardrums. 
If he doesn't preach loud enough, then we complain because he's too monotone, boring. Dear Lord, somebody teach that guy how to use voice inflection. Amen. If he uses notes, we complain because pray tell me where is the Holy Spirit going to get into that set of notes of his. He preaches a manuscript. If he doesn't use notes, then he rambles. Amen. He goes from Genesis to Revelation. There's no continuity to his sermon. Send him to Hope Sound Bible College where he can learn how to preach. In the church where you're from, there are people who probably are very, very difficult to satisfy and very difficult to please. And as a result, they're always complaining. Amen. You know what? A complaining spirit can very well be the telltale signs of a bad attitude. Because usually when a person becomes critical, it's a smokescreen to try to hide behind because they're not doing anything themselves. And so they have to complain and they have to criticize and they have to do this in order to take people's observation off of themselves. David's brother Eliab kind of bothers me. He really bothers me. You know, he was down there as a soldier boy. He was a part of the militant group that was out there fighting against the Philistines. And to be honest with you, uh, the whole bunch of them were scared to death. They were just trembling and fearful that, uh, that this champion of theirs, or the Philistines, who in the world could we send out there to fight against him? After all, he could be as tall as 60 or 13 feet tall, depending on what your interpretation of a cubit is. And so Eliab was one of the many that was not doing anything but just sitting around trembling and shaking in his boots. But when David come down, Eliab looked at his little brother and said, What? Why are you here? I know the conceit of your heart. Why aren't you back home taking care of the few sheep of the father's flock? He was focusing on the trivials, and he was actually setting up a smokescreen. Here was a champion of the Philistines that was out there challenging all of them, and he was sitting around with all the rest of Israel doing absolutely nothing, and this kid brother of his was about to step forward. He's already shown his disdain for the situation. He's already proven to be very upset that an uncircumcised Philistine would defy the armies of God. And Eliab's not going to sit there and just let his little brother show him up, so he starts criticizing him for the trivial. Amen. We get into such problems in our local churches over the trivial, over the small things. You know, it dawned on me somewhere along the line in my pastoral ministries that I wasn't going to do everything that the people wanted me to do. Now, that was a little bit of a shock to me because I've kind of been a servant-type pastor, and I've been willing to do anything and everything and even beyond what my people required and requested of me to do. But at a given point, I came to the abrupt conclusion, I'm not going to do it all. There is a job in the church, bless your heart, that I refuse to have anything to do with. You know what it is? Setting the thermostat. Hello? Don't look at me like I just landed from outer space. You know what I'm talking about. You can set that thermostat smack dab in the comfort zone, 68 to 72, where everybody's supposed to be comfortable. And I'll declare unto you this morning that after you have done that, there will be people sitting there, or perhaps maybe even on the same church bench, 
one of them will be saying, I'm about to go into convulsions. I'm so cold. And they wrap their shawl around them, you know. Or if it's a gentleman, he'll grab his jacket and put it on. And 18 or 20 inches away, there will be somebody who will be sitting there. You're cold? I'm about to melt down in my shoe leather. I'm smothering. How are you going to please everybody? Okay, this is not going as easy as I thought it would, but that's all right. Let me, let me ask you a question, McCrary. You're up there telling us that complaining is a bad attitude. No, I don't want you to misconstrue my point of emphasis here tonight. Maybe some of you are saying, are you saying, Mac, that we can't complain ever if we want to be a true child of God with a good attitude? I'm glad you asked that question because I don't even want you to think that you can't complain. Most of us who are pastors welcome critique because we've learned a long time ago that criticism can be constructive if it is done in the right way. But if you're here tonight or this morning and you're constantly complaining, you're constantly bickering, you're constantly fussing, nobody can do anything right in the church, you need to really stop and check your attitude to make sure that it's kosher and that it's all right. But if you do want to complain, then here's what I suggest to you. Go to the proper chain of authority. Go to the person who's in charge of that area of labor in the church where you want to complain about and and talk to them about it. And if that doesn't work, then walk your way up the chain of authority and go all the way to the person where the buck stops. If you have to, to voice your complaint, it's okay, it's okay. But whatever you do, don't go around that person's back. Don't go traipsing off in the community. Don't go start caucusing in little groups. Complaining bitterly and angrily. Amen? Do it in the right way and do it with a Christian spirit and do it so as to make your church a better church and your pastor will love you for it. I hope that makes sense. The second C that we'll be looking at is not only just a complaining spirit, but a bad attitude or an attitude unchecked becomes a contrary spirit. Did you read in that passage of Scripture where the elder of these two boys refused to go to the meeting? He wouldn't go to the celebration. He wanted to have nothing to do with it simply because things weren't going the way he anticipated them to go. Amen. A contrary spirit, an unfavorable spirit, an incompatible spirit, a spirit that simply became disorienting to the whole celebration. Let's set this celebration up again. I mean, the prodigal has come home. He uh, has been away. He has come home haggard-looking, very disheveled, a mess. He's been living in a pig pen. When he comes home, the daddy is so happy to see him. He runs, falls on his neck, and he kisses him, and he welcomes him back, and he offers to put a best robe on his shoulders and back, and then he says, you know what, son? I'm just so happy you're home. We're going to kill the fatted calf. Music has begun. The celebration is in full sway. The prodigal who has returned is so happy. People are reaching out to him and shaking his hand and saying, Thank God you've come home. 
The daddy is standing there by his side, maybe with an arm around his waist, so proud that his boy is back. And then it happens. Where's my other son? Where's my oldest boy? Why isn't he celebrating? Why isn't he here with us? You know where my oldest boy is at? Last time I saw him, he was out behind the barn. Told me he wasn't coming to this celebration. What? We ought to go talk to him. So the father is pulled out of the time of celebration. He's disoriented from the thing that he has himself instituted. He can't be there making merry and being happy with his younger son who's returned because he has to leave the program to go out there to console his older son. So he has disoriented his father. Now how do you think the younger of the two boys felt when somewhere in the midst of the celebration he goes to looking around for his dad and his dad isn't there? What's going on? I thought my dad was happy to have me back. All of a sudden he's excused himself and he isn't even here. What, Dad, where's my brother? Is my brother not happy that I'm home? And suddenly the prodigal has to be feeling somewhat melancholic. He's disoriented. I thought this was a time of celebration. My dad's not here. My brother's not here. Hey, all of these other people can give me hoopla, but it doesn't mean anything if the two most important people in my lives are not here to help me celebrate. And the elder brother certainly is disoriented. So what I'm trying to tell you tonight, that era this morning, is this. If you allow your attitude to go unchecked until it becomes contrary, well, bless God, I'll show that preacher because I'll just not go to the meeting. It's going over like a lead balloon, isn't it? Let's face it, McCrary. I'm only one person. My attitude's not going to affect the whole church. Oh, yes, it is. The attitude of one person completely disoriented this time of celebration. And I remember a number of years ago picking up my daily newspaper, and I recall seeing a big, blowing up picture of a major league baseball player. I saw him as he was not standing at the plate, getting ready to hit a home run, which he was so capable of doing. He wasn't running the base pass, stealing a base like he was acclimated to do. He wasn't making the sensational catch out there in the outfield, which he'd been known to make. I mean, this guy was a multi-million dollar a year ball player. But in the picture, his fists are doubled up. And he's into a fisticuff with one of his very own teammates. They get into a brawl. They get into a fracas right there in the clubhouse. And guess what? The year before this fracas took place, this is the team that won the World Series. This is the team that everybody said is going to become a dynasty. This is the team that everybody says is going to continue winning year after year after year. They have such youth and they got such potential and such power. Well, they never made any trades. When the team came back for spring training, it was basically the same team that everybody thought was going to be a dynasty. 
But because of that fracas in the clubhouse when one person got angry and mad at his teammate and got into a fight with him, that whole team became so disoriented and so messed up in their emotions that they never even got out of the basement of their standings in that particular league. What are you saying, Mac? One person with a bad attitude can throw the whole local church into disarray. Don't let your spirit, don't let your attitude develop into a contrary spirit. The third C that I would call your attention to this morning is a condemning spirit. He allowed himself to become so degraded that he became condemning. How many of you here this morning really believe that the prodigal son wasted all of that money down at the red light district? How many of you really believe that he spent his money among the harlots? Obviously, ever so many of us believe that. But why? Why do we choose to believe that about the prodigal son? Who told you that? Amen? Was it Jesus? No. The worst case scenario that Jesus spoke about the prodigal son was that he spent his money riotously. You know what the word riotously means? Recklessly. Anybody here ever spend money recklessly? I just thought I'd ask. All of us are guilty of that. And that's the worst case scenario that Jesus said about him. Well, then who told us that he spent his money among the harlots? A man that was antagonistic toward him. A man that had a heart full of hate toward him. A man that absolutely refused to have anything to do with him and stayed out there on the backside of the farm when he should have been in there celebrating. I'm talking about his very own brother is the one who told us that he spent his money down among the harlots in the red light districts. Wake up, people. Are you going to start believing everything you hear about an individual when the source of that information is a person who is antagonistic and full of hate, bitterness, toward the person to begin with? How many of us have formed opinions? How many of us have ideas in our head about other people today. But those ideas and those opinions were put in our mind by somebody who is antagonistic and has a bad attitude already against that individual. Amen. His condemning spirit developed into a censoring spirit. He refused to call him my brother when talking to his father about the whole consternation and the thing that was bothering him. He simply said to his father, this thy son who's wasted his living or devoured his living among the harlots. He refused to call him my brother. Whoever gave you the credentials to censor anybody? Hello? My heart was warmed this morning as I sat in the Bible study and listened to our friend as he spoke to us out of his heart. Dr. Kaufman is continually introduced to people of a different caliber than we are. 
And did you pick up on the idea that God has given him a spirit that doesn't censor people? You know what? Some of us are at that point in our life where if you don't see it the way I see it and if you don't believe it the way I do it, we're ready to just cut them off. If that's your mentality, if that's what you're into, if that's the way you approach things in life, pray tell me whose measuring stick are you using? Oh, bless God, I'm using the discipline of my church, McCrary. Oh. I see. Enough said. (laughs) The fourth C. His spirit became contemptible. He became mean. He became hateful. I think the word is envious. I used to say jealous, but I don't use the word jealous carelessly anymore because a number of years ago it dawned on me that while envious and jealousy is very, very closely connected with each other, the truth is they're not the same. While jealousy can have that wicked, evil connotation, it also must be remembered that it can be a child of love. Jealousy. My wife is sitting out here in the audience this morning, and she's been my bride for 42 years. I loved her when I married her and when we exchanged our sacred vows, but you know what? Our love has deepened and matured until today. I love her more than I have ever loved her in the past. And I don't mind you knowing that. As a fact, I want you to know it. And nobody, I'm sorry, men, hope this doesn't come across wrong, but I don't want any of you guys to give my wife a wrongful sideline glance. God bless you. I may not be the most muscular guy in the world, but there's enough of me that if I ever get you down, it's all over. You say, McCrary, I'm sorry that you feel that way. That disappoints me. Well, why should it? She's my wife. I love her. What's wrong for you to be jealous of her? Is it? God loves us. And he's jealous of us. He doesn't want us flirting with the world. So I'm not saying just jealous today, but here was a man who was so full of hate, so full of envy, that he was contemptible. I can't believe how malicious some people become when their attitude goes so far south. I mean, we don't just cut people off. We assassinate them. We destroy their reputation. We make it as if they are afflicted with a plague and no one should even come close to that man or woman. They're as a leper. I was raised on a turkey farm. (laughs) That answers all your questions, doesn't it? That's why I'm such a turkey. And those turkeys, there were so many things about a flock of turkey that just irritated the daylights out of me. But one of the things that really, really bothered me was when we would find a sick turkey, we would take him out of the flock and put him in a sick pen. The only reason why we would do that is to preserve their life because if something went wrong with a a turkey and it became ill, especially if it had some small laceration, the rest of the turkeys in the flock would come after that weak turkey and would literally peck it to death. Mean. 
ill-spirited. Somebody in our church can falter and fall. And instead of trying to reach out for the crippled one and put them back up on their feet, we pick at them. We slander them. We spread the word all across the country what they have done. Don't associate with this person. He or she has a plague. So we're guilty of killing our own people and destroying our own ranks because our spirit has become contemptible and full of hate. I wouldn't even really want to know this morning how many preachers have had to leave the ministry because of a group of lay people who have went after them and attacked them. Flip side of that coin, I'd hate to know how many good laymen have been lost to the church, lost to the kingdom of God, because unwise pastors who have allowed their attitudes to go south have used the sacred desk for vengeful purposes. Bless God, I got the pulpit and you listen to me. Amen. The last C is cantankerous. He became angry. Angry. Years of service had made him to feel that the establishment owed him something. And when he hadn't gotten it, he got angry. His rights had been infringed upon, and so he got angry. Ever been around angry church members? Just thought I'd ask. You're awful quiet. I'm trying to get you to respond. Hey, listen, I was 17 years old preaching a revival meeting somewhere in America. I don't know what I was preaching on that given night, but I do know that while I was preaching, I had a fellow to stand up in the congregation and say, I don't believe it that way. Whoa. I'd never had that to happen to me before. Or since, thank God. So what did I do? I was in the brush. That region where so many preachers have been before, you know. And Hey, if you ever get in the brush, it's hard to get out. So I didn't know what to do. I said, ladies and gentlemen, stand. Shake hands. Be friendly. You're dismissed. They all breathed a sigh of relief and went home. The next night, I got back in the pulpit again. After the pastor had turned it over to me, I read a text. I started preaching a message that had absolutely nothing to do with what had been said the night before. And I don't know how it got in there, but it did. The identical statement that I'd made the night before, and just like a jack-in-the-box, he jumps up. He said, I told you last night that I didn't believe it that way, and I still don't believe it that way. I was 17, admittedly. Very little wisdom. Still don't have a whole lot. But I looked at him across the congregation and I said, Sir, I'm preaching God's word. You're going to have to believe this or you're not going to make heaven. Would you please sit down and let me preach? I don't know where I got that audacity. I sure don't have it today. But he sat down. (laughs) However, I didn't do any preaching. I was back in the brush again. So I let them stand, and they were dismissed. I remember, of course, the next night. I need to introduce you to this gentleman. He was the Sunday school superintendent. He was the song leader. 
He was the treasurer of the church. He was the adult Bible teacher. And he was the head usher. I mean, that's the way he put it. <laughs> there was only one usher, but... Uh, He made sure that I understood he was the head usher. I mean, it was an unorganized church, as you would suppose. But hey, he had all of the positions. His song leader, he gets up to leading the song service on this first night of, I don't know what night of the revival it was, but I remember he looked that crowd over and he said, ladies and gentlemen, we need a revival around here. Amen. He said, take my mother and father-in-law, sitting right over there, for instance. He said, they profess to be saved and sanctified. And they don't have an ounce of religion. He said, folks, they're hypocrites. They don't even pay their tithe. I'm the treasurer of this church. I know what you folk give. My mother and father-in-law puts a dollar a week into the offering plate. Now, they can't be saved and sanctified not paying their tithe. And then he looked all of the other people over and he began to take his pot shots at different ones in the church until a woman in the back of the church her name was Hester and if I could describe Hester to you it would be something like this if the devil ever had a grandmother Hester would have been a prime candidate I'm talking about, hey, you know what? Her husband was a commercial fisherman, and he said, Mac, I want you to go fishing with me in the morning. He said, okay. When I met him at the river, I couldn't believe my eyes. His eyes were practically swollen shut, black and blue marks on his face. I said, I about called his name. I said, what in the world? He said, what do you mean? I said, your face. Oh, he said, Hester. Hester? Yeah, he said, when she gets mad, she's brutal. <laughs> Hello. Seeing is believing, you know. And here she is tonight. She's on her feet. She's looking across the audience to the platform where Bill is ranting and raving, and she says, Bill, shut up. Sit down. There's not a person in this audience that has an ounce of confidence in you. And we didn't come to hear you rant and rave. We come to hear that boy preach. Now sit down. Hello. He did. He sat down. But you know what? I didn't do any preaching. <laughs> I was afraid there's going to be a knockdown, drag out. And I was, a, I was really afraid I'd be the one knocked down and drug out. So I said, folks, be friendly. Shake hands and you're dismissed. Wouldn't have been too bad if I hadn't been staying in the man's home, that very man's home. But that's okay. I had it all figured out, you know. He takes the pastor home. It's a little lady that's a pastor. He takes her home 30 miles one way and 30 miles back. And so, hey, you know what? I got home in time to relax and collect my nerves. And I said to myself, self, you be in that room in there before they get home. They pulled a fast one on me. He was good at that. He was good at that. They got somebody else to take the preacher home that night. So while I'm sitting there relaxing, they walk in. She says to me, Reverend, you like to have something to eat? I'm going to go fix Bill something to eat. I said, you know what? I think I'm going to go to my room. And Bill said, no, you're not. I said, I'm not? No, he said, you and I have got some things we need to talk about. I didn't like the sound of that, but what was I going to do? I walked into the kitchen. I sat at one end of the table. She sat at the other end. He pulled a chair out, spun it around, said, young man, we had a big discussion about you before you ever came to this revival meeting. The pastor wanted you. You came highly recommended. I said, 17? Nah, he's too young. Now that you're here, I'm more convinced than ever that you're too young. I said, Bill, couldn't agree with you more. Really? Yeah, Bill, I am too young. I'm scared. I don't know what to do with this mess. But I said, Bill, there's some old seasoned veterans that have been preaching the gospel for years that wouldn't want to tackle this. 
He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you, Bill. I've been in your home for almost two weeks. I haven't seen one sign of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. What do you mean? You trying to tell me I'm carnal? Yeah. Yeah, Bill, you're carnal. Well, how can you say that? I'm the only one in the church that cares whether we have a revival or not. I pray every day. I got a place up there in the woods that I pray. I pay my tithe. I'm the one that's keeping this church open. Well, I said, Bill, that's wonderful. You remind me of a man in the Bible. Who? I said, the guy that went off to the temple one day. said, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like other men. I pray every day and I pay my tithe. That's just exactly what you told me, Bill. But guess what? God never heard that man's prayer. He said, now you're saying that God doesn't hear my prayer? Where is this place up in the woods you've got? And he said, oh, it's a little prayer chapel up there that I've made. I said, Bill, I'm sorry. Your prayers probably aren't going any higher than the treetops. You know what made it worse? Not what I said, but his little wife sitting at the other end of the table was agreeing with everything I said. Yeah, she was like saying, amen, Brother Mac, tell him. Well, that's like saying Sigum to a dog, and here I am, a little terrier. I'm going right after this big guy, you know, and I'm saying, and she said, Bill, listen to him. He's trying to help you. And he looked at her. I'll never forget it if I live to be 100 years old. He said, you don't have any confidence in me? Nope. You think I'm carnal? Yeah. You're agreeing with everything you said? Yes, Bill, I am. He said, well, as soon as this revival's over, we're getting a divorce. Yeah, I'm not embellishing this. You know what she did? She grinned. <laughs> as if, welcome retrieve, you know. I'm telling you, that was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. He stomped and he ranted and raved and went out of the room and went to his bedroom and slammed the door shut. She got up and came over to me and made a classic statement. I'll never forget it. She looked at me and she said, Brother Mac, he's mad. I don't think she could get more classic than that, you know. He, he's mad. I think she saw the look of mirth on my face and she said, No, Brother Mac, I've seen him mad before. I mean, so mad that he's hit me with his open hand. He's hit me with his double up fist. I've gone to work. I've gone to church with black and blue marks on my face and have been so ashamed to tell anybody how I got those bruises. He's brutal. He's an abuser. And I'm scared for you. Be careful. Wait a minute. Are you singing me a lullaby? I went to my room shaking like a leaf. I listened to all the barges going up and down the Ohio River. I heard every creek in that house as it settled for its long night's nap. I heard him as he got up in the, about 4 o'clock in the morning and came out of his bedroom into the living room and out of the living room into the kitchen and up to my doorway. And again, it wouldn't have been too bad if I'd have had a door, but all I had was curtains. And you don't lock curtains. I hear him and I say, oh, God, don't let him come through those curtains, please, Lord. And God heard my prayer, thankfully. He turned and went out of the house and he went up to his prayer chamber and spent some time with God. About two hours later, he came back and he came into the house and across the living room and into the kitchen and came to my doorway. And I knew this time that it was over. He was going to come through, you know. So I did the next best thing. Well, I don't know. It's kind of hypocritical, but I did it anyway. I closed my eyes as if I were sound asleep. He walks over to my bedside. I don't, I don't really see him, but ooh, I felt him. Brother Mac, I just let it go in one in and out the other. And, and then he said, uh, are you asleep? Hindsight's always twenty twenty. I wish I would have said uh-huh. 
but I didn't, I didn't. I said, no, I'm not asleep, I'm awake. How long have you been awake? All night. All night? I came to your door at 4 o'clock this morning. I said, yeah, I know it. I don't know what you know about me, McCrary, but when I left the table last night, I was so mad. If I could have got my hands on you, I would have killed you. I could have killed you. I've been so brutal to my wife. I didn't tell him she had told me all of that. He said, Mac, when I lay in bed, I couldn't sleep. I was so angry. And then all of a sudden, the mask that I'd been hiding behind was ripped off of my face. I saw the man that I had never seen before, the guy that I thought was keeping the church alive. I realized was the man who was about to close the church doors. My attitude is so rotten to wonder anybody allows me to have anything at all to do at the church. Mac, I, I've asked God to forgive me, and I believe he has. Would you forgive me? I said, Bill, you're forgiven. He said, listen, I'm going to church tonight, Mac, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resign all of my positions, and I'm going to tell the people... I'm sorry, and then I'm going to humble myself. I got to be cleansed of this nature. I got to get rid of this thing. I can't. I can't live this way. Well, we went to church that night. Hey, it was a full house. I mean, the place was packed. It was a small church, to be sure, maybe 75 seats max, you know. But they were all filled. People were standing outside looking in. The little vestibule was chucked full of people. I mean, I don't know what they came for. They sure didn't come to hear me preach. I hadn't preached in three nights. I think they thought there was actually going to be a free-for-all. Bill got up to lead the singing, and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, I got a few things to say. It got quiet again. He looked at his mother and father-in-law, and he said, Mom and Dad, I'm so sorry. I want you to forgive me. I was such a fool last night when I said all those things about you. My wife told me on the way home that your income was $40 a month. This was a long time ago when the minimum Social Security check was around 40 a month. Hey, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what the tithe is on $40 a month. They'd been paying their tithe faithfully. He weeps and cries and says, please forgive me. Then he starts asking everybody else to forgive him. And then he says, I'm going to go to that altar and I'm going to ask God to cleanse me. I've been forgiven, but I need to be sanctified. That's when Hester hit the floor again. Remember her? Hester screamed like a Comanche Indian. If God can do it for Bill, she shouted. He can do it for me too. And she tried to get out, but she was just squished in, and she couldn't get out to come to the altar. So she said, forget it. I'll pray right here at the seat. And she did. And in less than five minutes, she struck fire. But believe me, she got out that time. She was in the aisleway, and it wasn't a long enough runway. She up and down that aisle, shouted a time or two, then out the door through the vestibule under the macadam, out in front of the church, shouting, about the saving grace of God and his forgiveness. All of this happened on a Friday night. Saturday and Sunday, the two services. Seventy-five brand new seekers that had never been converted in their life came, found God. Seventy-five. It was unbelievable. And a church that was about ready to close its doors had the dawn of a new day because one person who had had this horrible attitude confessed it out and was graciously forgiven and began life anew. I don't know to whom I'm preaching today, if anyone, and again I say, let this be practical maintenance. Don't let your attitude become 
a bad attitude. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. As it has been passed, I don't want to lose the fight.